Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 11. There are holidays assigned for many things, and the holidays typically remind us of things, important things, whether it's Christmas or Thanksgiving or Independence Day or Memorial Day. Some holidays um, remind us of not so important things. You can get calendars and go online and find national days for just about anything. There's National Spaghetti Day. That doesn't sound bad. There's National Super Mario Day. I think that was Thursday. I heard that on the radio. Uh, There's National Nose Picking Day. So, you know, go with that. Just to name a few, these days help us to remember important things sometimes. Sometimes they just remind us of silly things or just things that, that people enjoy. Sometimes they're very serious. We remember wars. We remember national days of mourning lost loved ones or those who have given themselves in service to our country. We remember holy things like Christmas and the birth of our Lord and Easter and his resurrection and all other sorts of holy days and holidays and feast days in between. And sometimes with these holidays, in fact, a lot of times they are associated with different kinds of food. So when I say turkey, Almost everyone immediately thinks Thanksgiving, maybe Christmas. It's, it's funny to me, I don't know if anyone eats turkey like roasted in the oven any other time of year except for Thanksgiving and Christmas, but that's part of our tradition and culture. Hot dogs we eat all the time, but I associate them with Independence Day, Labor Day, Memorial Day, and cookouts around that time. Gingerbread, candy canes, associate that with Christmas. And these things conjure feelings. They conjure emotions, memories. Maybe good memories, maybe bad memories, but either way, they help us to remember. At this point in the story, God has unleashed his power in Egypt. And as we looked at the plagues, we saw that his purpose in unleashing his power in that way was so that Egypt would know that he is the Lord. So that Israel, his people would know as they leave that he is the Lord. And so through lessons and these signs and wonders that he gives Egypt and his people, no one will forget these things that happened anytime soon, whether it's Egypt under their condemnation or Israel unto their salvation. God comes today in the final part of this this part of the story and says there's just one more thing. And this one more thing will become the central holiday, the central feast for Israel at that time and even to this day for observant Jews. And it's with that one goal in mind, the release of his people and them remembering what he has done for them, that he brings us to this part of the story. For Israel, he says, remember your exodus, your departure. Remember your deliverance. Remember my salvation. Remember my hand fighting for you. What does he tell us today, 2,000 years later, as part of a New Testament Christian congregation? Well, he reminds us of our better exodus, our better deliverance. He reminds us that we're headed to a better land and that we have a greater Passover. And God, too, calls us to remember. With your marker or finger there in Exodus chapter 11, I want us to read first from Exodus chapter 12, the first 13 verses. This will be the anchor of our text today. We'll go back to 11, but I want to read Exodus 12, 1 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months, and it shall be the first month of the year for you. 
Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you, may, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let nothing remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Let's pray. God, this is your inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Help us as we read today, as we listen, as we hear your voice to obey, to worship, and to remember what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. Open up your word now as we read and we hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, let's ask the question, who's in control? We've come to this point after nine plagues. God has given instruction time and time again to Pharaoh, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go. And Pharaoh again and again says no, to which God seems to have to respond each time with this plague. And if you're reading the story just at face value, it seems like God's trying to convince Pharaoh to let the people go. And to this point, it has not worked. But that is, in fact, not the story that we see in Scripture at all. Because it is not Pharaoh who is in control of this story. It is not Moses who is in control of this story. Time and time again, we have been reminded that it is Yahweh, the one true and living God, that is in control of this story. In fact, back in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, he told us how this was going to happen. You're going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to say, let my people go. He will say no because I will harden his heart. So it's not as if Pharaoh's in control of this situation and God, every step of the way, is trying to convince Pharaoh to change his mind. No, God is behind the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Remember why? So that all of Egypt and all of Israel might know that I am the Lord. And so we come to this point in the story by the hand of God and by the sovereign will of God. And he says in chapter 11, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, yet... One more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh, and I will bring upon Egypt. And it says afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you out completely. So this is different. God says, go tell, Mo- go tell Pharaoh one more plague. And after this plague, he will let you go, and he will drive you out completely. Look at chapter 11, verse 2. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man and his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold and jewelry. Remember this, God said, you're going to plunder the Egyptians. Verse 3, and the Lord gave people, the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So every step of the way, every single detail, God is working, God is moving to give the people favor, to give Moses favor. And he says, this time Pharaoh will change his mind and he will let you go and you will plunder the Egyptians. So what's going to be the material of this final plague? Look at chapter 11, starting in verse 4. Moses said, thus says the Lord, he's speaking to Pharaoh, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt 
And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and the firstborn of the cattle. And there shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt such as there never has been nor never will be again. But not a dog shall growl against the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me, bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. This is how it's going to go down. God says, I'm going to come down at midnight over the land of Egypt. And I will strike down the firstborn all the way from Pharaoh down to the servant girls, down to your livestock. Every firstborn will be left dead. And after that, verse 8, you will beg us to leave. Pharaoh will beg us. Your people will beg us. Get out of here before we all die. And then verses 9 through 10 remind us how we got here. Then the Lord said to Moses, and this probably should be rendered, remember that the Lord had said to Moses. It's sort of a recap of all that's happened so far. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Again, isn't this what God promised? Pharaoh will not listen so that in order that my wonders and my power might be displayed in all Egypt. Verse 10, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, all the plagues that had happened. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So remember as we were reading through the plagues, whether it was Pharaoh actively hardening his heart, or it was the passive, his heart was hardened, or it was the Lord actively hardening Pharaoh's heart, we have the summation here in chapter 11, verse 10. In fact, it was the Lord all along, from the beginning, hardening Pharaoh's heart, so that he would not let the people go, so that he could unleash his glory and his power all over the land of Egypt, down to the point that we're at today. So who is this Pharaoh that thinks himself to be a god? Who is his firstborn son who he thinks to be the son of a god? You would look at him and say this is the ruler of the greatest empire in the known world at this time. He is sovereign. He is Lord. He is king. He is Pharaoh. God says, there's one higher than you, Pharaoh. And it is I, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. And we're going to see his will and his plan and his promise and his power exalted over Pharaoh. Number two, he tells his people this morning to be ready. In chapter 12, the text we read earlier, chapter 12, verses 1 through 13, he tells us, be ready. Chapter 11, verse 7, gives us a little inkling of what is to come. He tells the people, I will make a distinction between Israel and Egypt. And if you were listening to the first passage I read from Exodus 12 to the people of Israel and the passage I read from chapter 11 to Pharaoh, you'll already see those distinctions, don't you? Because to the people of Israel, he gives instructions. He gives revelation. This is what's going to happen. This is what you're to do about it. But what did he say to Pharaoh? This is what's going to happen. And he withheld his revelation of salvation from Pharaoh. And then we see how this distinction is going to take place. Look in chapter 12, again, verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. Look down at verse 5. And this lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old, You shall take it from the sheep or the goats, verse 6, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So every household take a lamb. Not just any lamb, a lamb without blemish, a perfect lamb, a male lamb, one per household, and you are to kill it on the 14th day of this month. Verse 7 tells us that we're to take the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. 
So outside on the street, as they enter into their dwelling place, they're to take the blood of this lamb that they've slain, and they're to place blood on either side of the doorframe and over the doorframe. And then in verses 8 through 10, it says, You shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Verse 9, do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and inner parts. The whole thing you're to eat. In verse 10, you shall let none of it remain until morning. And if anything does remain, you shall burn it. We get the feeling that God wants us to make a point out of this lamb. Roast the lamb. The whole lamb. Don't divide it. Don't cut it up. Don't take anything out. Roast the whole thing. Eat the whole thing. Let nothing remain. So that the picture is that this whole thing is consumed with unleavened bread. And verse 11 tells us the manner in which they're to eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. In other words, God says when you do this, you eat the unleavened bread with the bitter herbs and the lamb. You're to do it quickly With your shoes on, your belt on, your clothes on, your bags packed, ready to go. And he's already told Moses, this is the last one. After this, they will drive you out and they will drive you out quickly. So when you do this, you must do it quickly, ready to go, because the Lord's Passover is at hand. Now, Moses from the Lord told Pharaoh what was going to happen, but he did not give him any instructions. That is because it is up to God's sovereign free, unmerited, and unearned grace to reveal what he wills to whom he wills. And you have to remember that in this picture, neither Israel nor Egypt are deserving of God revealing anything to them. But God in his mercy and his grace has chosen Israel to be his people at this moment for this time, and he has not chosen Egypt And so to his chosen people, he makes revelation. He gives information. He shows the way to salvation in this instance while he withholds it from Egypt. Executing judgment on Pharaoh. Executing judgment on Egypt. But not just Pharaoh. And not just Egypt. Look at verse 12. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in Egypt, man and beast, But look at how he summarizes this judgment. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. And there's a rhetorical question, I think. Why? Because I am Yahweh. They will know who did this. And in the decimation and the humiliation of their false gods and their false idols, they will see who was really in control and who has the power over life and death, even up to the Pharaoh. Then he tells his people, in light of this, after you eat the Passover, I strike the firstborn, Pharaoh lets you go. When you leave... I want you to, number three today, I want you to remember. To remember. I opened this morning talking about holidays and how holidays help us celebrate, they help us commemorate and memorialize. But generally, when we talk about a holiday, we are called to remember something. And God says in the establishment of this most holy day for his people, he says, this is my intention That in the eating and the drinking and the celebrating and the observance, you will remember. In verse 14, we see this feast established. Chapter 12, verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord, the feast of Passover. Throughout your generations as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Down in verse 17. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread that followed the feast of Passover. For on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. You hear that? Observe Passover. Why? To remember. Observe the feast of unleavened bread that follows. Why? To remember that I brought you out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand. Chapter 12, verse 20. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened 
bread, this commemoration of the unleavening of the bread. And why unleavened bread? Because if you know about making bread and you add the leavening agent, a little yeast, you've got to wait. Right? At least 30 minutes, sometimes longer, sometimes overnight. It's got to sit, it's got to ferment, it's got to bubble up and rise. And what does God say? You're not going to have time for that. So water, oil, flour, mix it together, make you some cakes, and get ready to go. In verses 21 through 23 of chapter 12, Moses communicates God's instructions that he had already given to Moses in chapter 12, verse 1 through 12. So God said in the early part of chapter 12, tell the people of Israel this, take the lamb, kill it, eat it, blood on the doorpost, Passover. And then here in chapter 12, verses 21 through 23, we see that repeated. Look beginning in verse 21. Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lamb for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, that is some leaves and branches tied together, and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will not or will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses and to strike you. So Moses takes the instructions that God gave him, he gives him, he obeys, and he gives them now to the people. Look at verses 24 through 27. We ask the question, why? Why the lamb? Why a feast? Why the bread? Why all this detail, God? Verse 24, you shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. Again, why? What are we trying to remember? Four, verse 26, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and they worshipped. And in verse 28, the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. They obeyed. This is going to be an ongoing sign an ongoing feast for the people of Israel so that when you get to the land and you are doing this strange thing every year and your children ask you, what are you doing this for? What does this mean? You shall tell them from one generation to the next generation to the next generation what God has done for you in Egypt, what God has done for you in your salvation and your deliverance. And so he gives them these present signs for this future significance, a perpetual sensory reminder of what God did. And what did they do in response in this moment? They bowed their heads and they worshipped. And then they worshipped by obeying. As we go on in chapter 12, we see that Pharaoh finally breaks Look at chapter 12, beginning in verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. So we've seen the hand of the Lord move from the waters of the Nile to the land, to the livestock and the beasts, to man with the boils, to the servants of Pharaoh, And now it's all laid at the feet of Pharaoh himself, quite literally, in the death of his firstborn son. And in verses 31 and 32, Pharaoh finally says, enough, go. And you remember all the bargaining that Pharaoh did in the plagues. Okay, go, but don't go far. Go, three days. Go, but leave your livestock. Go, just your men. What does he say now? 
in verse 31. Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go serve your Lord as you have said. And verse 32, take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. In other words, enough bargaining, Moses. Everything that you requested, just go and do. Leave and leave quickly. So what about his hard heart? What about his stubbornness? What about his power, his glory, and his pride? Exodus 9, verse 17, the Lord told Pharaoh, you've exalted yourself over my people. What happened to that Pharaoh? Well, he's been shattered. He's been cast down and broken. The Lord Jesus warns us of this in Matthew 23, verse 12, that he who exalts himself will be humbled. Oh, how Pharaoh is humbled in this moment. How often God must do this to people. How often God must do this even for believers. Believers like you. Believers like me. How often God has to do this to unbelievers to bring them to themselves. This morning, maybe ask yourself as you see this example of Pharaoh, what will it take for your disobedience and your stubbornness and your pride to break? Unbeliever, ask, what will it take for your unbelief and your pride to break? Unbelievers, why are you still refusing to come to faith in Christ? Why do you hear the call of the gospel to repent and believe and keep putting it off and keep saying no and keep disobeying? Believers in the room today, what do you keep withholding from God? You say, I'm a Christian. I profess my faith in Christ. I grew up in church. I've been baptized. I go to Sunday school, whatever it is. But what are you withholding from him in unbelief and rebellion? And what will it take for God to break you? God breaks Pharaoh, pulls him down off of his throne, and with him all of the false gods of Egypt. We see in verse 33 why they were told to be ready. The Egyptians were urgent. I think it's a polite word for get out. Please leave. Verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. And they're right. Please leave. We've had enough of this. And if you linger anymore and Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart, we're all going to be dead by the end of this. This urgent cry for them to leave, for them to get out. And this this is what God told them would happen. In verses 35 through 36, we see that fulfillment of what God said. Verse 35, the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. I love the addition of that phrase here. Not just asking for silver and gold and their stuff, which miraculously the Lord changes their hearts and and they just give the people. But it adds what this was. They were plundering the Egyptians. Language of warfare language of a conquering military force coming into a land, subduing it, and plundering it of its spoils. Except these people had not fought a battle. Israel had fought no wars. They lifted no finger and no hands in these plagues. God had fought for them. God had gone to war for them. God had won the victory for them, for his glory. And his honor. And now he fulfills this promise. Although I fought the war and I won the war and I'm the victorious one, you will reap the benefits. Go and plunder the Egyptians on your way out. Lastly, we see the Lord tell his people, remember to remember. Do what I've told you. Because I want you to remember, and don't forget to remember. God reiterates the reason behind all of this. So that as you go and as you come into the land, 
you will remember what I have done for you. From generation to generation, you shall tell your children and your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren what God has done, who God is, and the victories he has won for you. Lest they forget. Lest the people of Israel get to the land and turn away to other idols to other nations, to themselves. Chapter 13 is all about this remembering to remember. Chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. But later in Leviticus, we're to see that the firstborn of the beast are to be given to the temple, the tabernacle for sacrifice. The firstborn in the family, already a, a special significance in the old covenant, but now even more so in this consecration of the firstborn. In verses 3 through 5, then, after the feast of Passover is this feast of unleavened bread. And Moses says to the people, chapter 13, verse 3, Remember this day on which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Verse 8. You shall tell your son on that day it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial, remembering between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. Down in verse 14. And when in time... To come, your sons ask you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man, the firstborn of the animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand and frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Staff here know that I like reminders. I like bullet points because I get going on other things and things just, just leave out the back end of my, my brain. And so I like a reminder. Kim leaves ni- nicely written little post-its on my computer and on my desk as a reminder. And I, I feel that hand coming from the Lord here in this passage. Because as you read one passage after the next, after the next, the Lord seems to be repeating himself an awful lot, doesn't he? When your son asks you, it's almost as if he wants to set up that scene to happen. When your children ask you, when your son asks you, what are you going to tell them? That the Lord brought us out with a strong hand, with a mighty arm the Lord has brought us out. When your children ask, when your children ask, when your children ask, remember, 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 and then tell them what God has done. Oh, what God had done for these poor enslaved people. His people. He raised up a deliverer and empowered him for his service to demand that Pharaoh let his people go to worship him. Causing Pharaoh time and time again to harden his heart so that he might show his power in Egypt Striking down Egypt piece by piece, idol by idol, all the way to Pharaoh, a supposed God, and his son. So that no one would have any doubt that this Yahweh was the one true and living God. So that Egypt would remember that very truth to their condemnation. And so that Israel would remember that very truth in their salvation. So that as they went, they would remember They would worship, and they would obey. How easy it is to forget, and they do. 
You know the story of the rest of the Old Testament. They forget quick and repeatedly. Well, here's the truth for us this morning. We forget too. We forget to remember. And we need to be reminded this morning. God's wrath fell on all of Egypt and on Pharaoh in those nine plagues. And we were warned of the danger of hardening our hearts before the Lord. And that the day of his wrath will not stay forever. We see God's wrath fall upon Egypt and Pharaoh here in chapters 11 through 12. In the slaying of the firstborn up to Pharaoh's very house. This messenger of death, this messenger of judgment comes and strikes down the land of Egypt. But a distinction was made. Chapter 11, verse 7, a distinction was made between Egypt and Israel. And what was the means of this distinction? What made the difference between life and death? The blood of a spotless lamb without blemish. A sign of distinction given to the people of Israel that was withheld from Egypt. That in his pure, sovereign grace and mercy for his people, he said, put the blood of the lamb on the doorframe of the house. That from their bondage, their slavery under a wicked Pharaoh and hard taskmasters, this humble shepherd by the blood of a spotless lamb would bring deliverance and victory and salvation for his people. But I hear John the Baptist say in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Another Lamb given by God from God who is God. I see his blood spilled on Calvary and I hear him say in John 19.30, It is finished. And a transaction was made. An exchange was brokered. A payment was fulfilled. I hear Paul say in Romans 3.25 that God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation means a substitutionary, atoning sacrifice to appease the wrath of God. That very wrath that lighted upon Egypt and Pharaoh. The very wrath that each of us deserves because of our sin before a holy God is the very wrath that fell upon Jesus on the cross. So that in him there is no more wrath for us because he drank every last drop of it. A transaction was made. An exchange was brokered. My sin and my wrath for his righteousness. Praise God for the gospel. And the gospel is just that. You want to tie me up here this morning. The gospel, I'm trying to calm down a little bit. The gospel is just that. The blood of a spotless lamb who is our sacrifice. Then, it was a powerful but temporary deliverance from Egypt in the night. Now, the salvation and deliverance from death and hell and sin for eternity. Oh, how deep our enslavement was to ourselves, to our sin, to Satan. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. How deep your enslavement was. 
how helpless and hopeless and unable and unwilling you were. And I was. And Paul says in Romans 1.21 that our minds were made futile in our thinking, empty, vapid, a vacuum. And our foolish hearts were darkened. You were just as bad off, and I was just as bad off as Pharaoh. Just as bad, just as worse as Pharaoh was. Ephesians 2, 4, though. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, raised us up, raised us resurrected us, delivered us, saved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. And then Paul reminds us, by grace, you have been saved. Because the deliverer was raised up, greater than Moses. Moses was the deliverer as a son of man. But one came as the son of man and the son of God. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance and essence with the Father, who created all things, who was empowered by his Father for this service. When the Holy Ghost descended on him in his baptism, Isaiah says the Holy Spirit descended on him with a spirit of wisdom and understanding of might and power and the knowledge and wisdom of the Lord to do signs and wonders and miracles to exhibit his power and his authority over sickness and nature and Satan and all the demons of hell and even death itself, who through his death and resurrection freed his people from the curse of sin and death and hell forever. What did God tell his people then? Remember, eat, feast with bread, remember, and worship. What does God say now? Remember, eat the bread, drink the wine, worship, and remember. The people of Israel were commanded to keep the feast, to remember God and to remember his promises, so that as they kept the feast, they would tell their children when they ask what God has done. We too are commanded to keep the feast as it has been fulfilled in Christ. Our deliverance, God's Lamb, And the salvation we have in him. Because that night when Jesus took the bread and the cup, he changed the liturgy up forever. No longer were we talking about a physical deliverance from Egypt and a physical promised land. No, Jesus took the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. This is the blood of a new covenant, which is shed for you. That in the bread and the wine, we remember the lamb that was broken for us. We remember the blood shed for us so that God's wrath might not fall on us. And we do so, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, until he comes. Just like they ate and drank, ready to go, we eat and drink, ready to go. What a great salvation we have in him. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, because of that great salvation, Paul says, therefore, let us keep the festival. You could say it like this, therefore, let us keep the feast. And Paul says this isn't merely in something that we do. This isn't just in the bread and the wine or Passover or communion or whatever. Paul says we keep the feast with our obedience. We keep the feast in our worship. We keep the feast in our lives changed by the gospel. We keep the feast as we proclaim the gospel to other people. We keep the feast as we gather for the Lord's Supper in this setting. We keep the feast as we live lives changed by the Holy Spirit. So that when your children ask, 
Why do you live that way? Why do you do that thing? Why do you listen to that man go on for an hour every Sunday morning? You say, because of what God has done for me. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lastly today, this is a sign for you. You ever ask the question, why the blood on the doorpost? I did. Does, does God not know who his people are? Wait, do we really need the, the blood on the door? I love the, the old animated, old, m- m- mildly old, animated movie Prince of Egypt and its adaptation of the story. And they put the blood on the door. But it occurred to me the last time I watched it with Anna and my girls and Isaac that, that when the angel of death comes by the house, the, the little cloud that represents the angel of death sort of looks at the door and sees the blood. And you can hear that in my mind there's this whole conversation going on where it's like, oh, this, this door has the blood. I don't need to go to this door. That's not the way this went down because the sign was not for God. The sign was not to tell God, don't go here, go here, don't go here, go here. The sign wasn't for him. Exodus 12, 13 tells us who the sign was for. And this will be a sign for you. A hard, physical, verifiable sign to weak-hearted, faithless people. A sign of God's promise. God doesn't need this sign to know, to learn, to be assured of who his people are. They need the sign. God does not give us baptism and the Lord's Supper in the New Covenant as some sign to him. We call baptism our profession of faith, and it is. We see the Lord's Supper as an act of worship and devotion from us to the Lord, and it is. But it is far more than that. God gives us these pictures and these tangible expressions, not for us primarily to express ourselves to him, but he gives them as signs to us because our salvation does not rest on our promises to God, but on God's promises to us. His deliverance isn't dependent upon our works for him, but his works for us. And so whether it's the blood of the lamb then or the water and the wine and the bread that are signs for us now. If you are in Christ, and if you are God's people, these signs tell you that you can trust his promises to you so that you will obey and worship and serve and love with your whole heart. D.A. Carson tells the story of two men applying the blood to their door frames fictional story but true nevertheless two men applying the door to the blood to their door frames there in Egypt or Goshen and the one is confident in God's deliverance confident in God's power no doubt no question in his mind that God will fulfill his promises and his family will be spared the other man nervously anxiously applying the blood with trembling hands because he doesn't quite know how this is going to go down. He doesn't quite know how this is going to play out for him and his family. He's heard God's word, he's obeying in faith, but he's shaky, and while this one is so strong, and D.A. Carson asked the question, when the Lord descends at midnight, which house is spared? Both. Because it is not the strength of their faith that saved them, but the object of their faith that saved them. Sinclair Ferguson says that even the weakest faith gets the same strong Christ. Here today, I wonder if any of you have a weak faith. Berated by the world your suffering, your circumstances, maybe bearing a burden of sin in here today, believers, failures. You need to be reminded of the good news of Romans 8.33 that no one can bring a charge against God's elect. Not even the accuser himself. Though his accusations may be true, they will not hold up under the blood of Christ. Not even a dog shall growl 
against the people of God. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Let us keep the feast, being welcomed at his table to feast and remember what he has done as we worship and as we leave to obey. Let us receive Christ and all his benefits here at his table by faith. There are many aspects of old liturgies that I enjoy, and one of them is from the Anglican liturgy of the Lord's table, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it. And just before the elements are given to the people, the celebrant at the altar will say to the people, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Today, as we pray, as Pastor Matt comes to lead us in a moment, we will keep the feast to remember and to worship and to obey. Let's pray. God, our Father, we give you thanks and praise for your gift of righteousness through Jesus Christ. That we come to a place like this today to worship and honor and magnify you, not because of promises and professions made by us, but because of promises that you have made to us, work that you have accomplished for us. And God, as we come to your table as your people, remind us of what this is. And as our children might surely ask us even today, why are you eating that? Why are you drinking that? We might tell them what you have done for us. Oh God, help us to remember. Help us to keep the feast, not only here at this table, but with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.